Coming up on this week's show, the Spectrum Next second Kickstarter is smashing it. The new Earthworm Jim trailer lands. And we chat to the legendary games developer, Mike Mika. This week's show is brought to you by Beer 52, the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 237, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And Joe, the baby maker Fox, is back. (laughs) (laughs) The baby maker. You make it sound like, you know, I'm just like spitting him out, like, yeah, babies. I mean, that was your nickname on the uh, the Nottingham night scene, even before this. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, we did make a little joke last week, because obviously you welcomed uh, your own little mini player too into the yeah, world last week. Yeah, my, my little daughter came into the world last week, um, the day of recording, uh, also the day of recording with uh, Justin from uh, Cinemassacre, so I was disappointed that I missed this one, uh, missed that one, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely over the moon, absolutely in love, uh, can't believe she's here already. So, Have you been getting any sleep, Joe? Yeah, um, I'm getting more sleep than my wife, bless her. But um, yeah, I'm not doing too bad. I get like a good, you know, five hours a night. Some gamers That's are probably listening bad. to this and going, oh, so I'll just sleep that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm doing all right, I am. But uh, my wife, she's getting, you know, intervals of about an hour and a half, two hours, bless her. But yeah, no, everything's going great so far. We were making a bit of a joke last week that we we're going to give you one day off and that was it. It actually turned out to be true, because <laughs> yeah. just a week later. <laughs> yeah, just to clarify, you know, Dan and Ravi said, you know, take as, take as many weeks as you need. But I was like, no, you know, I'm off for five weeks from my, my normal nine to five job. So I'm sure a couple of hours, you know, to come on and do the podcast, you know, which I enjoy, obviously. So And I missed it last week. So here I am. Hey, be honest with me, Joe. Have you already put a Mega Drive pad into her hands yet to see how well it fits? No, but she's had an Xbox One controller uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> pretty much on her hands already. <laughs> that would be we, retro by the time she's older. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, great to have you back, Joe. And of course, we've got some great stories to talk about this week as well, including this incredible Spectrum Next Kickstarter that I was watching last night, hit and refresh, and that number kept going up and up. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And we've got an amazing guest this week as well. Now, now, I love the fact that on the show we can get so many different people on from the world of retro gaming. And this week, we're joined by someone who shipped over 120 games. And we worked out he's actually done a product for every platform pretty much since the original Game Boy. Yeah, so I'd say it's like kind of converted or also ported around 120 games because this is Mike Meeker. And what Mike's done is he's a specialist in kind of emulating, but building commercial emulators as well. So uh, he worked with Midway and Digital Eclipse, who were like creating games for the Game Boy Advance, but they were a lot of the Atari classics. So he's a huge Atari fan. He was even in the Atari Game Over movie. You might have uh, recognized him from there. And he's also into stuff like Easter eggs culture. So he actually put a wedding proposal to his wife, It well, now wife, in a Game Boy Advance game. So you may recognize him from one of those stories. But Mike's an absolutely fascinating guy. When we were writing the questions for this, Dan was like, my God, he's done so much. (laughs) So we're going to try and fit in as much as we can with Mike on this week's episode. I love the fact that he put a wedding proposal in a video game as well. I love the idea. If I did that to my missus, though, she wouldn't have seen it to this day. (laughs) Never got to that level. (laughs) Unless it was ready to rumble boxing. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. She whips my ass on that every time. So, uh, yeah, Mike Meek is going to be our special guest. He'll be on the show in around 15 minutes from now. Now, actually, before, before we started recording this, 
um, about five minutes ago, I opened the ZX Spectrum Next Kickstarter page, and it's actually gone up by £2,000 in the last five minutes already. Oh, wow. Which is just insane. Now, obviously, the Spectrum Next, um, the kind of the 21st century remaking of the original Spectrum, a new vision. We've done entire episodes about the Spectrum Next before, and it's got some amazing, it's kind of like an evolution of the original Spectrum idea with some brilliant new hardware in there as well. Now, the thing is, there's always been a bit of a scarcity around this product because the original Kickstarter, obviously that sold out really quickly. And the only time that we've been able to get our hands on them is going to you know events like Play Expo. And a lot of people have been desperate. And every time I see Jim Bagley at shows, I'm like, come on, Jim. Give me a bit of an indicator. When's the next Kickstarter going to happen? Turns out we'd actually launched at 9pm last night at the time of recording this. And it had reached half a million pounds in 38 minutes they've worked out, which is a pretty good vote of confidence, I think, for this project. And that's insane. Did, so is there a limit on this one? Or is it they're just going for it on this one? I'm not sure. I think there may be a limit of, of the amount of backers because surely... You know, unless they've got a factory that's unlimited. <laughs> yeah. Well, at the moment, I mean, like I said, it's only, it's been going less than twenty four hours. It's now on seven hundred and sixty three thousand four hundred thirty eight pounds at the time of recording this, and the numbers going up again already. Uh, they've got two thousand one hundred seventy one backers at the moment. I got in there last night. Um, I think I was about fifty minutes into it, and I'm backer number one thousand five hundred thirty four. So they reckon that these are going to ship in August next year. But like you said, I mean, there's no real indication on the page of how many they're planning to make or what's going to be in well, this their, run. their stretch goal is 1.2 million here. Right. So that may give you a kind of idea. I imagine they'll reach that by, I mean, looking at this now, I think probably by this weekend they're going to reach a million pounds. You know, the reason I think this console's been so successful was because they actually took time on it. Like, we've seen yeah. so of a so many other products that got put out and rushed and ended up being a disappointment, even from like Sony with the PlayStation classic stuff like this. But this one, you know, there was a long delay. It's taken ages to get out, but the spectrum fans have stayed there. And actually now it's got quite a good user base. I'd say it's probably under about 10,000 machines out there, but that's pretty cool. It's, it's a lot better than, other retro projects uh, better than anything in the Amiga world or, or C64 or anything like that. I wouldn't know if the C64 Mini's done more, but um, this is a really, really interesting development, and maybe people will take more notice to the retro gaming scene, and we might get some more devs for it as well. What I think is good about this compared to other projects, I mean, obviously the minis and stuff like that are great, but essentially all they are is kind of modern emulation platforms for the old machines. With the Spectrum Next, as we know, they've actually put a lot of new stuff in here as well that kind of breaks it far beyond the original Spectrum models. You know, they do a lot more than they could originally. I mean, I've actually backed the um, the accelerated version of it as well. So when you've got one megabyte RAM there, you've got RGB, VGA, HDMI out, and there's 28 megahertz turbo modes in here as well, an accelerator port, SD card. And then, of course, we've got that gorgeous case that I think was actually the, the last thing that Rick Dickinson actually did, wasn't he, the original Spectrum case designer? Yeah, yeah, it was. And uh, it is an absolute beautiful case. I'd probably say... It's, it's the nicest case out of all of these machines, to be honest. And the keyboard's really wonderful as well. Yeah, I mean, we've played with them at shows before, and every time I do, I mean, I, there's demos that you can check out on YouTube. You know, Mike Daly 
who obviously worked on the original Lemmings. He's done like a port of Lemmings to the Spectrum next. And, you know, some of the stuff he's doing with that, it kind of rivals the Amiga version. You know, it, it looks incredible, the work that he's been doing. So I think, you know, you, you made a good point there, Ravi, that, you know, it has got a small user base, but I think the difference is going to be that this will a- attract in- indie developers, I think, to it. But also, like, Sky own the brand, don't they? And if yeah. Sky are going to notice that this is successful, to be fair, they've they've had a few kind of stuff like the Vega that... um kind of didn't work very well and uh, a few projects that have burnt them maybe this will encourage them to actually keep doing stuff with the Sinclair brand if they see that there's a demand for it and it just looks like a quality bit of kit as well I mean like you said they put a lot of time and effort into making this you've got the great case design you know even the box looks incredible it just kind of oozes quality it looks like something you could actually buy in like a high street shop you haven't like cut any corners with it yeah totally so uh, yeah, if you're doing to get a hold of a Spectrum next, and I think you know the fact that it has been like what 2017 was the original Kickstarter. The fact that people kind of like me, you know, I kind of felt like I missed out on it then, and I've been kind of desperate to get hold of one. That kind of that scarcity. I think you know we've talked about this on the show before. Scarcity kind of increases value because um, you know they've actually put the price up. It is actually more than the original Kickstarter. Um, so apparently the cost of doing it, and they didn't put stuff like taxes in there originally, um, which now they need to pay. So it, it does cost a bit more. Like I said, about three hundred quid for the uh, the baseline model, three two five for the accelerated version. But I still think for a project like this with the high-quality machine that you're getting and also something that's been developed by a small team. I still think that's good value for money, and uh, I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on mine. And I think a lot of people are realising now that, look, if you don't back this, there might be a chance that you won't get one in the future. So if you do want to get hold of it, the Kickstarter's live now, and I'll put a link in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, of course, Blockbuster is, you know, if we're talking about tickling the nostalgia itch, that generally seems to be something that takes people back to, you know, a certain time in their life. And we have talked before on the show about the fact that there is, I think there's only one blockbuster left in the world now. And that's the one that um, AVGN did a trip there, didn't they? In Bend, and, Oregon. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Bend, Oregon. That's it. And Adam Korolik did a video visiting there as well. Well, it turns out if a, a little trip there for half an hour browsing through the videos is not enough nostalgia for you, you can actually stay in this last blockbuster in the world. This has absolutely blown my mind when I saw this. Um, what really gets me is not only obviously it's like, oh yeah, you're staying at Blockbuster, it's going on Airbnb. It's $4. <laughs> like, it's wow. $4 to stay. Like, I keep thinking it's a typo, but I've seen I've seen the same $4, like, you know, figure coming up on several articles, but I think I'm missing the point here. What what? It's just, they've created like a 90s living room with like beanbags, <laughs> a pull-out couch, um, and then you can get like gobstoppers, Twizzlers and nerds and popcorn and all this kind of stuff like brought to you for the night. And then literally you can apparently go into the store, pick any film you want to watch. And then you can just chill in this like in this lounge uh, and just watch films, which I think is absolutely incredible. And it just really like brings back that kind of like nostalgia of going to Blockbuster on a Friday night to get a film for the weekend or, or even, you know, a Mega Drive game or something. Did, did you ever fall asleep in there, Joe? What, in Blockbuster? (laughs) (laughs) No. no. Standing up at the racks. Standing up at the racks. (laughs) But no, I think think it it looks crazy. And for $4, but like like you say, it's it's at the last Blockbuster. And I'm assuming they're doing it just to kind of keep business going with everything going on with COVID and stuff like that. Well, from what I heard, Bend is like a really small town in Oregon and there's not much going on. So this is probably like the tourist industry in Bend. (laughs) (laughs) This is probably one of the one Airbnbs in the whole place. Yeah, maybe. Maybe they know people are going to come and, you know, do vlogs and stuff like that and pay to stay and 
do videos oh, about so it. It's going to be block booked by YouTube, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the moment, um, the listing's going up later this month uh, on Airbnb, and it's open. So the listings are going up on August 17th, and then it's going to be available from September 18th to book. But at the moment, they're saying only people who live in the same household can book. Obviously, and, and the county, you've got to live near Bend as well. Yeah, you have to it. live in Bend or, or in the county. Right, I guess that's COVID rules, but like, yeah. how, long, how long do you think it's going to stay at $4 per night once it gets popular? <laughs> I, honestly, I thought it'd be $40. That's why I kept some yeah. I go yeah. like that, you know, I, I've never done an Airbnb or anything, but that's just so, so cheap. That is ridiculously cheap. Yeah. Yeah. Usually you're right, they're like 40 or 50. Or, yeah, yeah, so. But yeah, so even if you want, even if you want to stay overnight there, and you're not even into the the retro experience, for four dollars, that's cheaper than a hotel, isn't it? Four dollars just to sleep on a beanbag for the yeah. night, like, if you're in the area. <laughs> What I do love is, I mean, I've watched the videos and the vlogs so far, and from what I've seen, I mean, it's actually kind of been run as a modern video shop. Yeah. You know, they've got, like, Blu-rays and stuff in there and 4K. You know, it, it's not like VHS tapes, but actually looking at this, it said there is now a VHS player available. Yeah. And like you said, they've kind of done that kind of 90s-style living room. So it looks a bit like they're actually trading a bit on that nostalgia now, you know, they're kind of getting VHS tapes in there and making it like that, you know, retro experience. But it's not it's not a true eighties party because you're not allowed friends smoking drugs or pets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which were a staple of every party you went to in the eighties, right? <laughs> Mrs. Ravi, he's free. <laughs> he's smoking and drinking. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean even like I imagine, I remember that smell of walking in Blockbuster. It was always that kind of mixture of like, you know, the, the, the candy floss in there and the popcorn and, you know, and obviously the, the sweaty guy worked behind the counter generally as well, <laughs> all mixed up in the air. And it was that kind of unmistakable smell that just takes me back. And I'm, I'm hoping that you're going to walk in there. Because that's the one thing no one's really mentioned on the vlogs that I've seen, but that... Having that scent in the room would be very nostalgic, I think. <laughs> They're just like spraying it like a musk into the room. And, it, for the and apparently they haven't got a shower either. They've got a bathroom, not a shower. So, uh, yeah, I imagine there will be certain scents lingering in the air. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I think that's really cool. And, uh, you know, j- just for like, again, you can't make a road trip there at the moment or fly over. It's only to residents of the area. But I think they could charge a bit more than $4. And, uh, yeah, you know, sure. when the world kind of gets back to normal, invite people from all over around there. That'd be awesome. Now, of course, we've talked about Earthworm Jim on the show in the past, and obviously the new Intellivision Amico. Now, these kind of two stories merged together as um, they did a big kind of keynote last week. It was actually the day that we recorded the show. Now, it was meant to be on Tuesday. We recorded the show on Wednesday last week, so we were going to talk about it on last week's show, but Tommy Tallarico actually moved it to the day after with about 10 minutes' notice. So this was last Tuesday. It was meant to be a YouTube live stream. And they were going to do like an hour and a half, two-hour keynote, giving all the details about the new Intellivision Amico that, of course, is this kind of uh, reimagination of the Intellivision that Tommy and the crew are working on at the moment, kind of recreating it as a you know family-friendly gaming console. Uh, but then a lot of people kind of tuned into this live stream expecting to see that. And instead, we've got Tommy on his phone in his living room at home going, um, we're going to do it tomorrow now because we've had some new developments. So with 10 minutes notice, that was did seem a little bit unprofessional, I've got to say. A lot of people were kicking off. But then the actual keynote they did the next day, I mean, that was actually quite a slick affair. But one thing that came out of that, and we'll talk more about the, um, the announcements in a moment, was the Earthworm Jim 4 trailer. Now, of course, we know that Earthworm Jim 4 is currently an exclusive on the new Intellivision Amico system. Uh, it's going to be one of the launch titles. But 
even though it was meant to be out in October, they've only released like what is essentially like a little 30 second teaser. And I've got to say the reaction so far is probably mixed to say the least, I think. I think for a teaser, they've really, really, really missed the mark here. Like nothing happens in this trailer. Like he lands on a beach in a clip and then whoever's playing it runs the wrong way for two seconds, goes left to the screen and then runs right. And that's it. That's it's, all just that showing off, it's just showing off the parallax, really. Yeah, that's all it's that's, doing. That's and just showing, it, off, yeah. showing off what the graphics will look like, which a few people have commented that they're disappointed in the graphics. Uh, they were really hoping for that like pixel art. But instead, they've got like that modern hand-drawn artwork, which I don't mind. Um, it's worked well for a couple of, you know, like Streets of Rage 4 and stuff like that. But yeah, this, this considering this game is meant to be coming out in like, was meant to be coming out in two months, it just kind of like makes you think, is that all they've got? And is that all they've got ready to show kind of thing? Yeah, you'd hope to see like weapons or kind yeah. of Jim doing moves towards the camera exactly. or like or uh, other, other, other animals and creatures as well, like yeah. bogey and... Uh, Enemies, uh, anything like yeah. that. Yeah, you know, you would have thought you'd see some of those, you know, fantastic a bit kind of level backgrounds and level themes and kind of like, you know, with the original one and two, you know, maybe bits with him on his rocket and stuff like that kind of like different mini games in there but yeah just just a guy running left and a guy and then running right it's a bit disappointing <laughs> you know what actually surprised me most about this i mean obviously like i said you've got that kind of modern hand drawn graphics style, which i don't mind but it's just what a happy game it looks because yeah you've got earthworm gym on like a tropical beach i remember Earth, earthworm gym it was all like dark dingy levels and everything it, it wasn't like this yeah you know that's what i meant by when i was saying you know you see some of that level design because of i always you're always in kind of like lava caves or junkyards or yeah. in a storm on a farm and you know like you say yeah it's it's very happy. He looks like he's in like Barbados or something. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he might, he might have done all right for himself in the last couple of decades. Yeah, maybe. Was, yeah. <laughs> but then even like some of the phrases, I mean, the, there is, there's a few sound effects that you hear. And I mean, the, you know, the voice acting and everything, is, it's reminds me of the original. I don't know if it's the same guy. But he actually says a phrase. He goes, uh, okay, boomer, pull my finger. And I'm, I must admit, kind of getting that kind of, you know, the, the modern internet memes in there did kind of make me cringe a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I had to, I had to watch watch that back to actually figure out if that's what he was saying. And I was just well, like, all oh, right, okay. <laughs> well, we had Nick Bruti on, who was um, the guy who was doing a lot of the original pixel art, as well as uh, Doug Tanapal, who was the guy. But I don't know if um, Nick Bruti's actually on this version, so maybe it's lost that kind of. Um, edge of like i'd say it's like a ren and stimpy style cartoon mm. yeah it, i mean i guess well i mean we'll talk more about what happened in the the amico special event in, in a second but again the fact that you know tommy's always said that they're going down the route of making this uh, a very family friendly essentially you know yeah, a yeah. console that's going to be fine for the kids to play and for grandma so maybe they don't want something isn't the, the whole one of the whole points of the amico is it's meant to be like every single game is like but a, also a like everyone or something. If you yeah. look at the old the old Earthworm Jim, it was like gross, but it wasn't like offensive or hmm. or or you know violent. It was like funny violent, you know, kind of squashing cows and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I mean, maybe this wasn't a game that you know you can play with your, you know, your, your preschooler and like you know your granny's going to yeah, watch maybe. it and they'll go like, oh, yes, that might, that might be the case. But I mean, we got we got a bit more out of the announcement as well. I mean, they did. I think it was about uh, an hour and a half. I want to say the stream was that they did last Wednesday. It was actually when we were recording the show, so um, I've watched it back. And they've shown quite a bit in here as well. So they've announced now, I mean, the system was meant to be out this year, but it's now been delayed until um, August 2021, which actually, I mean, there's a few reasons for that, I imagine. Obviously, getting hardware manufactured at the moment with a lot of the plants around the world being closed. You know, that, that's completely understandable, I think. But also, I think that probably is a good thing for them to do as well. Because originally, they were going to try and launch that at the end of this year. They would have been going head on with the PlayStation 5 and the new Xbox that have essentially been launching at the same time, which um, I imagine would have probably overshadowed them quite a lot. But even though Tommy Tallarico keeps insisting that they're not competition for the PlayStation or the Xbox, they don't want to go into that space, it's unavoidable if they're a video game system that there is going to be some crossover there, I think. But there are some versions out there, right? There's like some with beta testers. I've seen some videos online of people playing about with them. Right. Yeah, the general availability now is going to be April 15th, 2021. Uh, They've released a bit more as well. I mean, the pricing skews as well, which again, I mean, they're going to be releasing it at $249 for the base unit. And then GameStop are going to be selling them as well. And they're doing a bundle that is $299. And for that, you get six or seven games included and you get the two controllers with it as well. But again... I mean, it's kind. I mean, obviously, you get the free games included, and some people are saying, "Look, if you take into account the price of those, the system's really only costing you two hundred and seventy dollars." But it's kind of like we we're talking about the other week about the Atari VCS. When you get to that kind of three hundred dollar price point, you're probably going head on with the PS Five if the rumors are to be believed. But also, you're actually at the same price point as the Nintendo Switch. Mm, yeah, this was. I was actually talking to Ravi about this just before you you came on earlier on, Dan. I was saying this about the actual about the Spectrum Next. Funny enough, I was saying you know for mm. the same price or similar price, uh, we can all buy a PS5. Like you say, if the rumors yeah. are true. And the only the only people kind of gets goes back to what you were saying a minute ago about Granny, like Granny watching you. The only people I can see buying this Amico is is your grandma in like the likes of. I mean, we don't even have Toys R Us anymore, but. You know, where she sees this friendly, fan, family-friendly games console, and she's like, "Oh yeah, I'll buy that for my grandson or something." That's the only, only thing I see really. Like, you know, and it's got this whole like, "Oh, you can download an app and you can make it eight players couch play using smartphones." You know, so it's going for that kind of like couch play as well. But you, you'd buy a Switch if you were trying to do that. You see, I'm yeah. the guy who predicted that the Switch would be a complete failure. So I don't really know <laughs> we, what we I'm don't like to bring that up, Ravi. <laughs> it's hard. We don't, to, we don't mention that much, do we? No, no. It's hard to see, hard to see a market for this, though. Yeah. No, no. I'm going I'm to agree with Ravi on this one. No, I, I agree as well. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned the the Spectrum Next there. Yeah, okay. You, you know, you could get a PS5 for the same price, but I think that's a completely different audience. You know, people <laughs> that want a, a Spectrum Next. Yeah. Other guys that want to make old classic video games, but with this. If essentially they want to aim at family gaming, yeah. like you said, the Switch is a great system for doing that. I mean, mm. that is what the Switch is essentially aimed at, isn't it? So- yeah, but, but it would be great if this market does open up as well. If if you suddenly get this family friendly kind of non non elite gaming, you know, um, it could be really interesting and work well alongside the indie games. It's just maybe from our European perspective, we can't kind of see it because we don't have that association with Intellivision as well. The Intellivision brand, you know, it's probably, you know, you've, you've got to be at least 40, I think, to really remember that. You know, if, you, if you're aiming at, like, kids and stuff, 
they've got no association with in television. You know, if you, if you ask my little six-year-old nephew what it was, he'd have no idea. But then, I mean, a lot of the games it was showing, they were showing stuff on there like, you know, Evil Knievel, Missile Command, uh, Cornhole's another game they were showing as well. And they've announced that there's going to be 20 exclusive titles. The only one that we know so far is the new Earthworm Jim game. But the rest of it, I mean, people have pointed out that all the other games they were showing yesterday is already available right now on Android. So it wasn't anything that you can't really play on any other Android box, really. I mean, right right now it pretty much is an Android box we've, with we've Earthworm got Jim. We've got an on our hands here. <laughs> yeah, but a lot more expensive in the Uyar was at $99. Yeah. So that yeah. was kind of, you know, I got that as an impulse buy. But again, I mean, you're going head on with kind of the premium consoles mm. with these kind of mobile games again. So at the moment, I've got to say, it's looking like it's, it's I think it's going to be a difficult sell for a lot of people to justify getting it, but... I guess we'll see what kind of other exclusives they announce over the next few months. I mean, Earthworm Jim, like you said, it, it's got you know a lot of heritage there, and is that going to be a system seller though? Do you think? And, and Dave Perry is involved as well, isn't he? So like David Perry, mm. the guy who was originally uh, the creator of Earthworm Jim. So like you know, shiny entertainment. Maybe this trailer isn't representing it very well. But then, I mean, some people in the YouTube comments are saying, you know, I'll, I'll wait for two years when it comes out on the Switch and the Xbox One and everything. Which, uh, <laughs> at the moment, they're saying it won't, but um, maybe it that could happen. It I don't will. know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the, uh, the Intellivision Amica now going to be launched next year. So, we'll uh, keep an eye on the developments before then. Uh, now, let's talk about the Sega Dreamcast, another system that's very dear to our hearts. And there is a game that looks actually really good because I love my racers actually and this looks like a really good racing game that's coming out on the Dreamcast Arcade Racing Legends yeah so this is the article for a start makes me laugh because it says it's the first game to come out on the Dreamcast in 20 years which you know any of our listeners who are into Dreamcast knows is <laughs> it's complete a complete there lie there was seven last year <laughs> there was seven <laughs> last year I think there was like 12 in 2018 <laughs> something <laughs> mad like that but anyway this this game um, Arcade Racing Legends is coming out um, it was actually a Kickstarter um, a lot of Kickstarter stories today uh, which reached its goal earlier this year and it raised it was being developed by Pixel Heart and they raised 68,000 euros which is $80,000 and essentially what this is, is, you know, it's a physical game, which is coming out, which is really cool. Um, and they're going to be selling uh, or distributing, I'm not too sure how it works, 3,000 physical copies of the game are coming out for the Dreamcast. And essentially it's it's a classic, you know, it says it, this, it says it in the name. It's a classic arcade racing game. Um, and it's going to have that feel of, it says it's going to be very, very similar to games such as uh, Crazy Taxi, Sega Rally, kind of like Daytona. So that kind of like, arcade racing not realistic so nothing like Gran Turismo or anything like that but what yeah. really stands out for me is the graphics are so nostalgic of that kind of like I know they're Dreamcast graphics but it really remind me of like a really nice looking Nintendo 64 game it's it's interesting because I was looking at the graphics and I was thinking actually I've played a lot better looking racers on the Dreamcast like, yeah um, there was that motorbike one that was really good oh red something I can't remember that but uh yeah, there was some really good graphics, and this one seems a bit kind of boxy and a bit um, stretchy. It reminds me of Sega Rally. When yeah. I looked at it, I mean, the, the, even the colours and everything, the colour palette, that was the first thing I thought of. And, you know, Sega Rally, one of my all-time favourite racing games. And, you know, they're saying it's got career mode, you've got dual mode, there's a time trial mode as well, and more than 15 cars, six separate circuits, you've got city, desert modes and everything as well. So it does actually look like it's going to be a fun 
experience. Mm. I agree, Ravi. It's not, it's not the best graphics I've ever seen on the Dreamcast, but I think it's very faithful of the era. I think. Yeah, yeah. Redline Racing. That's the one. Check out Redline Red Racing. Line Racing. That, oh, that, okay. That's beautiful. But yeah, like, like I say, it reminds me. It doesn't remind me so much of the Dreamcast. It reminds me of a nice looking N sixty four game. Yeah, because that N sixty four had a lot of arcade races. Well, apparently it's out this month as well, so okay. uh, we'll put a link to the story in our show notes. I'm not sure whether they've uh, put it out to the Kickstarters yet, but that looks like something I'd love to get hold of. I mean, and any excuse to get the Dreamcast out again for a weekend. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> right, now before we chat to Mike Mika, our special guest, he'll be on in a couple of minutes' time. Let's give a big thank you to this week's supporter, our very good friends at Beer 52. Now, it's actually quite shocking that we're halfway through August already, into the final bit of summer here in the UK now. And obviously, it's been a very weird summer this year. But I I think, you know, you guys have been the same. I've spent so much more time at home, out in the garden, soaking up the sunshine, playing on my Switch outside, and maybe uh, drinking the odd beer or two as well. Just a couple. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, what better way to celebrate the end of summer than enjoying a beer in the sunshine, maybe having a barbecue with your family or just having a nice afternoon out there with some Beer 52. Now, they've got the perfect beer for any occasion. And we want to give you eight craft beers for free. Is there a more magical phrase than free beer? No, there isn't. I think that's, you know... (laughs) Probably the best thing I've ever heard in my life, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) So we want to give you free beer uh, sourced and curated from the world's best breweries on the planet. Now, all you have to do is nip onto their website right now to claim this exclusive offer for Retro Hour listeners. Our little thank you to you. And of course, you'll be helping out the show by doing this as well. Head to beer52.com forward slash retro. All you have to do is cover... £5.95 for the postage. And if you're not familiar with Beer 52, they're actually the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. And they've got over 150,000 members. And you get a new case of beer delivered to you every month. And, you know, we've all tried Beer 52. Every time we have parties and stuff, every time we get together, there's generally a case of Beer 52 kicking around as well. And what I love is, I mean, we've all got different tastes, us three, but there's all something for everyone in them. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm into my fruity stuff. I'm a bit of a princess when it comes to, you know, drinking <laughs> alcohol. And I'm all about, you know, just your fruity beers and stuff like that. And the last part we had at Ravi's, Ravi was just, you know, kicking back, giving me all these like grape beers and milkshake beers <laughs> yeah. and stuff. And I was a bit like, oh, milkshake beer. But you know what? They they went down really smooth. Because I'm into all the pilsners yeah. and stuff like that. So it's good because you can get a mix. You can choose between like mixed beer and light beer as well. And I love that it encourages you to try new stuff as well. I mean, mm. you know, I was with my father and all were drinking. Uh, what did we have? It was like a salted caramel drink that they put in there, a beer. It was really nice, actually. Not the kind of thing I normally go for, but really enjoyed it. And they actually do different themes every month as well. I mean, they've done beer from New Zealand, South Africa, Korea, all over the USA and Europe as well. So like Ravi said as well, you can pick you know, your options. If you're, not, if you're not into dark beer, choose a light option. And every case comes with the award-winning beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack as well. And there's no obligation. If you change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time. So if you'd like to get your first case of eight beers for just £5.95, cover the postage on us. All you have to do is tap this in right now, beer52.com forward slash retro. Thanks to our very good friends at Beer52. Now, while we're thanking people, let's give a huge thank you to our amazing supporters, the incredible people who find it in their hearts to back us on Patreon. And actually, we were just talking before, actually, would you and other patrons hang out? So we're going to do one um, next Sunday, the 23rd 
of August at 8pm UK time. We'll all get together. Uh, Joe, I imagine this is going to be a nice little break for you as well, just hanging out with uh, with us geeks for a few hours. Yeah, it will be. It'll be a <laughs> bit of an excuse to get away from uh, get away from baby. But at the same time, I've missed her this last hour. So <laughs> so I'll probably miss her again, but I will be looking forward to it. And I've, de- I've got some SNES games that I need to go through as well. And I always use it as a great excuse to just talk about retro yeah, games you're retro always fun. reorganizing your collection yeah you? exactly <laughs> oh so, you know and I, I i like i say i really look forward to it and i just enjoy kind of listening to everybody's stories so we're going to be doing that um next weekend we'll put a link in our patreon page if you want to join us on our google meets on there and of course anyone who backs us on patreon uh, you're helping out this show as well all the money that we get on there is currently going back into originally it was going to be a studio space now we're getting our home studios up to spec as well with the money that we're raising so we can ensure the show's got a good future and it sounds good as well so uh, anyone that makes a donation will of course find yourself in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming the retro hour hall of fame like this week thank you so much to Nutmut, Ewan Matthews Charlie Preston Nat Robbins and Ross McPhee who all made donations into the running of the show we really appreciate your support and if you'd like to do the same you'll find the link to our Patreon on our website at theretrohour.com right we'll have more news for you on next Friday's show and next we're going to be chatting to legendary game developer Mike Mika You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, we've got so much to cover in the next hour because, I mean, I was reading that our guest this week has shipped over 120 games and has worked on a product for pretty much every platform since the original Game Boy. So let's welcome to the show the brilliant Mike. Michael, welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, Mike. Thanks for having me. I've actually been listening to you guys for a little while and uh, I've had a lot of friends who've been on the show. Oh, fantastic. Well, uh, let's hope we've got some... um, Good questions to ask you in the next hour, then, keep you a good standard. Uh, well, let's talk about, you know, your, your early history with gaming then. I mean, where did it kind of start for you then? What got your interest initially in video games? Yeah, it's funny. I, was, I feel like I was born at the right time because I was, I was born in 73, and Pong was just kind of exploding about mid-70s, uh, or early 70s, really, to mid-70s. And our first, my first experience with the video game system was something called the Rally 4, which was like a Pong clone that we had hooked up to an old black and white TV that my parents just shoved in my room. And uh, that to me, that was just something that was just mind-blowing because I could control what was on the television. I was just used to watching just Gilligan's Island and all these weird sitcoms and everything like that and animated shows on like TV, but I never had control of something. So that was just like it was just rewired my little brain that you could do a lot more with a television than like even what my parents were used to and that sort of thing. But the problem was it pong is a two player game. And like my dad got quickly bored with it. So it was just sitting in my room. So I ended up being like that sad kid who learned how to play ambidextrously. So I would play against myself (laughs) and like control a paddle on the left and right and try to keep a ball in play. But that was like my first experience with video games. And not too long after that, I remember seeing, space invaders at a, a drive-in movie theater and kind of where you would go to get the food the rotunda and i remember walking in there with my dad and there's this whole crowd around something and he was like oh you got to check this out and he kind of like pushed me through so we could see what was going on and that was the first time i had ever seen something that had like really defined graphics and felt like there was some sort of drama to it and uh that that was probably the the biggest impact on me very early and then eventually we got an atari 2600 uh a few years later I got that for Christmas. I had no clue that that existed. And the first game we got for that was Space Invaders. And the rest basically is history. (laughs) Well, a lot of those little kind of Pong games were multi-games. So they had loads of different options. Did yours have many options like doubles and stuff like that? 
Oh yeah, I, there was there. I remember there was tennis, which everyone pong was tennis supposedly. There was squash, where the paddles were on one side. Uh, there was hockey, where they add more paddles. Uh, but at the end of the day, it was just <laughs> remixing the elements, and they would just call it something. And like in your mind, you're like, "Oh, this is football. Yes, this is football." And it's like, no, it isn't. It's still pong with like a couple extra walls or a few other paddles. Were you expecting the 2600? And was it a bit of a game changer when you got it? Yeah, because I had no idea that it even existed. And it was a Christmas gift. So I, I opened it up and I didn't even really know what it was by when I opened it. I was just like, what is this? And I remember my dad flipped the box over and we're looking at the screenshots. And I, once I saw Space Invaders and I saw that it was in color, because until then I was playing on a black and white TV. We had a color TV to watch shows on and then the black and white TV was for Pong because there's no reason to have anything else for it. And um, so we hooked it up to our color TV. It's funny because like you think back and it's weird that I can remember so many details about it because I remember the Atari, I remember the wood grain and all that, all everything about it was just like this magic box. But I remember we had a Zenith television and how we had to hook it up in the back. It was like it was like a ritual <laughs> to get this thing to even work. Tuning it in because we had trouble. We hooked it up and nothing was showing up. We were trying to figure out how to tune the channel. We had a fine tune knob to try to get it in. You'd see the snow disappear and suddenly Space Invaders would be on screen. And it was like all so dramatic when you're a kid for the first time seeing something like that. Even wiring it up with the coax cable and I guess, did you have like a tuning knob on the TV and stuff? Yeah, we, I remember we had the <laughs> tune to channel three. We tried channel two because there was an option to be channel two or three and channel two just wasn't cutting it. So I guess because there was a broadcast channel happening on that. And so three had no nothing being broadcast to it. So we tuned to three and then we started to see it. And then we had to fine tune, move back and forth to finally like all the, the distortion went away. Oh, we have it so easy with HDMI now, don't we? <laughs> oh, we do. It, it, we definitely do. Well, what made you kind of move from, you know, just playing these games to actually wanting to design video games? It was, uh, you know, it goes down to a moment in elementary school. It was probably like four, third or fourth grade. And uh, I remember we, we were gathered, some other students from other classrooms were gathered into our classroom and they wheeled in on a little wheel cart, an Apple II home computer. And they wheeled it into the room and we we're just like, what is this thing? And it looked like it was, again, something from the future. Um, and, uh, we, the teacher kind of came in and started to explain what computers were and I knew what they were, but I just didn't know what the Apple II was or I, and I also didn't really understand the relationship with like video games. So she was going through saying like, you can do, uh, you can manage your books. You can do all this other stuff. I'm like boring, boring, boring. And then she just threw away like the whole thing of like, and this is how video games are made. And so there's like a brief little show of like this educational thing, but had a little game in it and that that was another one of those kind of major moments for me where it's like, wait a minute, you just said like they make video games with these. This is like what you use to make them. Uh, because at this point I was playing Atari like a madman. I've been, I was going to arcades all the time. I was just like obsessed with video games. And so the idea that I could potentially make a video game with a, with a computer uh, was just something that was super appealing to me. So my best friend and I uh, convinced the teacher to let us stay in during recess to learn how to use the computer. And his brother, who was much older, my friend's brother, he had already uh, kind of learned a little bit about computers and all this stuff. And he gave us all these books. And so we would take these books and try to learn how to program things on the Apple II. And during recess, we learned to make these really small games. I remember one was called 
destruction hurdles where you're just this guy running from left to right and there's hurdles coming at you. And there's these guys in lab coats above you just staring down, looking at you. And you try to jump over these hurdles, but if you miss and you touch the hurdle, it would zap you and your head would explode. It was this super gory graphic <laughs> or whatever. And I remember we we're so proud. Our teacher's like, you can't, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't show people that you did this at school. Were there any titles that were like examples for you? And I do remember that the Apple II scene as well was kind of rife with piracy at the time. Yeah, because, you know, back then I didn't understand that uh, games were a commercial thing. I just remember people would give you copies of games. So like we would get, like people would bring in Apple II games on just like floppies with a little handwritten label. And I didn't know what the difference was. I was just like, oh, people make games like we're making, but they make really good ones. And so I remember there was one called, um, I was like Snack Man or something. You're like, you're like, look like you're a little whale going around a maze eating dots. There's so many Pac-Man clones. And then really the the game that kind of blew me away ultimately wasn't even on the Apple II because um, what would happen basically between the Apple II and by the time I got my own home computer was we would go shopping with my parents at this department store and they had a computer section and there they would have like the Apple II, Commodore 64 and, all, and the Atari 800 generally were the ones. There was a TI-99-4A occasionally in there too. And uh, I really liked the Commodore 64 because it had all this really vibrant color and it sounded amazing. And all the demos they would put on there were really good. But more often than not, they would just have it on and just sitting at the ready prompt. So my parents would take forever shopping. So I would wander over to the book area and I eventually figured out they had programming books over in the book book department. And I would grab those Commodore books, go over to the Commodore and I would type things in. I would slowly over like several visits to this department store, learn how to program the Commodore 64. So basically one time my dad came over and he's like, trying to get me to go and i was there playing this little moon patrol game i made and he's like oh which game is that and i'm like well i made it and i was showing him how i did it and a week later we had a commodore 64 and the game he he picked was a game called beachhead by access software which i think came out by us gold uh in the uk and um that i'd never seen anything that beautiful before on a machine it just looked really crisp the details were really great and just the sounds and everything were amazing and that was another evolution for me of like where games are going. That was a huge impact because I felt the Apple II was great. And one of the games that really stood out to me there was Karataka. It was this amazing cinematic game and that blew my mind. But I just didn't have that machine to really experience it at home. Beachhead was the game that I could experience at home and it was very visceral. And it felt it was like I felt like I was in the moment. And in particular, there were sequences where you're like literally first person shooting at planes, flying over your, your ship and all this kind of stuff. It was, it was amazing. I love the fact that you're actually going into a store and <laughs> programming video games. I mean, I remember going in and just type, typing like, you know, 10, this store sucks, 20 go to 10 and leaving it running. But yeah, that's, that's incredible that you're doing that. I was so upset because my parents would take so long to shop. They would take like two to three hours. And so it was the most boring trip ever until I learned how to, like, I took advantage of that to like learn how to program. Ours, ours would be fill up the amount of computers with swear words as possible. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It all starts there. <laughs> well, kind of moving forward a bit, I mean, getting into like the, the 90s, um, you worked with a magazine called Next Generation. Mm-hmm. And obviously magazines were still king back in the early to mid-90s. What was kind of your journey there? And how did you get to work for them? What were you doing? So when I graduated from college, I graduated a, an English major. I, I originally tried to go into film and graduate an English major. And there really, at that time, still weren't that many computer science programs that focused on video games. That was a not, not even like a thought at, at university here. And so um, while I was doing all that stuff, I would still program on the side and just create games with my friends and sell games at like local computer stores and stuff like that for the C64 and the Amiga. And um, I had answered, I would, at the time I was working on 
a Game Boy game. I was reverse engineering Game Boy. It was one of the first homebrew Game Boy games. It was based off of a favorite Atari game of mine called Yars Revenge. And I had made that and put it up online. And I was getting a little bit of attention for that. But like, I was really bored because I was working at this sales job uh, selling like point of purchase things. In fact, they were selling PC tablets before anybody even thought what a tablet could be. And uh, so I was, I was doing good because selling these things was easy because I could walk into like a hospice or any sort of like business situation and just show them running doom on it and everybody would just buy them. So I didn't have to do a lot of work. I would sit there in my cubicle, just programming and goofing around. And so one day I was just poking around looking for job opportunities more in the, the game space. And uh, next gen was one of my favorite magazines. And I saw they had a job posting and I thought like, okay, I'm, I live across the country away from where next gen was, which was in California. Um, if I'm going to make it in games, I'm going to have to go to California where all the action was at the time. And that's my best bet would be to get over there. And I, I have an English degree. I can write. I have this background in, in games and programming. So maybe this is an opportunity for me to just like submit a resume and see what happens. And so I did. And Chris Charla, who's editor in chief, called me like the day after and said, like, hey, we want you to come on out and do an interview. And I'd never really left my state of Michigan in the U.S. like very much. I was just like really much a, a homebody and I haven't traveled much. This is my first time, I think, on a plane, maybe. And um, so I, I came out for the interview. Everything went great. And uh, I showed him basically what really, I think, sold it for me was I showed him a videotape of all the games I had made. It was just a whole bunch of stuff like uh, stuff I made on the Amiga, the PC, on the Commodore. And uh, they had not had somebody who could write and also had been a programmer, or a game maker before. So it was an interesting opportunity for both of us. And so they, they hired me pretty quick. I came out and I was there for about a year before the uh, opportunity came up for me to, to get into game development full-time. Because Next Gen was essentially like the American version of Edge magazine that we had here in the UK, wasn't it? Yeah, they were sister magazines. And in fact, mm. a lot of the content would get traded back and forth. We would get stories from Edge that we could put into Next Gen. We may rewrite it, rewrite it a little bit or focus a little bit uh, differently on some of the stuff, but we would share resources across magazines. And the whole goal was to maintain that editorial voice that Edge had with Next Gen in the US. and um, Edge was just like, again, Edge was one of those magazines that I would import. I'd spend a lot of money to try to get Edge. And being at Next Gen, it, one, one of the biggest perks was I got every issue of Edge, which was awesome. Uh, but two, uh, trying to maintain that editorial voice was something that uh, taught me a lot. I had to talk to developers and publishers, not as a fan, not as, uh, uh, you know, just anybody gen that generally would in, in journalism, but we, we would talk to them in a way that was more strategic about the business of games and and about the inner workings of games. And that was an incredible opportunity because Next Gen and Edge were magazines that were unlike any other magazine at the time. They really were very objective but hardcore about the culture of game development and games and the culture of games itself. Do you think that at the time there was a lot of kind of looking too forward too fast and ignoring stuff like the retro games? I remember some of the arcade classics were coming out at the time and they were coming out as like public domain remakes and uh, not major titles as compared to like nowadays where we're getting great releases of old arcade classics. Yeah, I, you know, when I was in college, there was a weird epiphany I had. I was taking film classes and, and one of the film classes, we had a whole section on film preservation and they talked about all the incredible movies that are, have been referenced in documents and journals that are gone. There's just no evidence of them ever exist, or not evidence of them ever existing, but there's no evidence of them existing anymore. And I 
been such a game fan my whole life. And that's one of the first instances of me worrying about what would happen to games that were on cassette or disc uh, years, years from then. And I would, I started to actually have little panic attacks about like, Oh, what about all these games I had worked on? If I don't save them, they're gone forever. And there's probably hundreds of other people in the same situation. And in fact, there's probably professional games that have been published that will be lost forever if we don't try to do something about it. And I was still just a college kid, but I, I started to then become kind of a hoarder whenever I'd encounter anybody who'd worked on games or worked in games, I would always ask them if they still had their source code or if they still had any copies of it and would they be willing to um, let me make copies and, and that sort of thing. Because I know like reading Edge back then, it was, you know, it was, I mean, the same with Next Gen by the name. It was very much looking forward to this like new generation of video games consoles that were coming along. I remember Edge having like 3DO, I think, on the cover of their launch yep. issue. You know, you think we've got enough choice now with like PlayStation, Xbox, and Switch. I mean, God, back then, like you know, Saturn. I remember Jaguar 3D, 30, CD32. There was CDI. so many differences. Yeah, there was so many then. I mean, did it kind of feel like a time when it was just like the industry was moving really fast? It did, and it was really hard because when I was at Next Gen, uh, to, to your question, really, it was like nobody really was concerned about the older games or even really want to talk to them too much. Even when we would do features on game developers the staff at next gen was really excited about finding out like their role in older games. And we would sometimes spend most of our time talking about that stuff, but what would go into the magazine would be everything else. And so we had a lot of interviews and I remember years ago, we found some of the tapes where there's fascinating insights into like the creation of a lot of the games that were on like the Atari or the Commodore 64 stuff that was just thrown away uh, to focus on what was coming up on future consoles and stuff for next gen. And I remember it'd be weird. We'd be in situations where I would be looking at some of these games, like these are so terrible, but like, why can't we talk about like this guy's working on this game, but he created one of the like biggest games of all time in the past. Can we at least like talk more about that? Whatever, because no one's going to care about this game he's on, which he clearly doesn't like, which I won't name any names, but there was a lot of that where it was just like, there were so many consoles and so many people trying to put product onto those consoles and games that uh, it was almost like, um, it was almost like there was like this weird dead period of like really low quality stuff. It's that had like peaks and valleys of like really good stuff, but there was just so much being thrown out there. But well, you worked at Midway as well, obviously, you know, massive company and around that time, you know, with games like Mortal Kombat and everything, they were huge. How did you get involved with them? And were you excited about joining a company with like such a, like you mentioned then, you know, good histor- historical legacy behind them? That was amazing because working with Midway was my first professional job after Next Gen. So while I was at Next Gen, the opportunity came up uh, because I'd done so much Game Boy work um, just on the side and for homebrew. And I did release a couple things uh, on smaller scale things. And Game Boy at the time was, uh, it was a platform that had been out for a while now. And this was like 98. And so it was basically dead, but THQ started to release games on it and the sales were really good. So Midway decided they wanted to do more Game Boy games at the tail end before it sunsets and just try to get a little bit of extra money uh, out of that because it was an extra product line that they weren't anticipating. And so I was contacted through Digital Eclipse, which uh, to this day I'm still part of. Um, there was a small contractor for Midway that worked on exclusively with Midway on a bunch of stuff. And uh, they said that Midway's looking for NFL Blitz and Mortal Kombat 4. And I'm like, that sounds amazing. This is like, if I'm going to go out uh, of magazines and, and start making games, you couldn't have a better selection of games to do that with especially in the US, NFL Blitz was just blowing up so huge. And um, so I said, yeah, let's do it. And so I remember 
uh, being at the, we, we have like a McDonald's here that was near the office when I was still at next gen. It was a double deck. It had like two floors. I remember going over business terms in the upper floor while eating French fries with the uh, CEO of digital clips, trying to figure out how we're going to do these games. <laughs> and uh, we signed NFL blitz and mortal Kombat. And the, the shocking thing was we didn't have much time. They wanted to get to market fast. So I only had basically three months to get these games done. And so I had to split tests. So I, I found some of my other friends in the homebrew scene uh, to, to help me out. And uh, my childhood friend too, Bob Baffy, uh, he helped me out on FL Blitz while we had someone else work on Mortal Kombat 4. And we got those games done in three months. They're not my most, I would say they're not the best work I've ever put out. Uh, three months is really tough. And at the same time, I had yet to resign from Next Gen. So I was still working at Next Gen during the day, making NFL Blitz at night. And at but by the time we were done with those, we put those games out there. There were huge sellers. Uh, they, they weren't bad. They weren't great. But there were enough that people wanted. And they got a taste of NFL Blitz. And they got a taste of Mortal Kombat. I remember both of those combined uh, really quickly. Both sold com- combined sold over a million units in just a matter of like a two or three months. And it just continued to go after that. And I, I, for, I lost count after that. Well, back then, there wasn't that many emulators established like mame and stuff and you guys were working creating kind of commercial emulators uh Mm -hmm. how did that really work and what what did people think when you were telling them you were kind of not developing unique titles but you were working on commercial emulators to then play these older titles (laughs) you know it's so funny it's like now you take it for granted but back then that was thought impossible and this is we started making emulation before mame did so the Joust Defender and Robotron, even before my time at Digital Eclipse, those were the first three titles that Digital Eclipse had done. It was like 91, I think, is when they did them, 91 or 92. And uh, they took those games, they, they got them emulated on a Mac. They took Joust Defender and Robotron to Midway in Chicago, and they brought a Macintosh with them. They set it on the desk, and they they brought out, uh, I remember it was Eugene Jarvis and Larry DeMar and a couple other people came out to see the, the demo. And the moment that as I hear it, the moment that the carpet sweep, they call it, which is the startup sequence of the Williams classic games comes across like all these random pixels sweep across the screen. Uh, they instantly knew that this was something uh, very special because there's no reason to do that. And then the, the, the speed in which, and the accuracy in which it was doing that carpet sweep, they knew it was pure emulation. Uh, they didn't understand that entirely, but they knew it was doing something like that. And so the game started and they were just blown away. And it was in basically at that point, it was like, Yes, let's do these and everything else. Let's. This is amazing. Let's move forward. So the first three games uh, were Joust Defender and Robotron came out on the Macintosh. Digital Clips published those games, and they were so successful that Midway basically renegotiated the relationship and made Digital Clips exclusively uh, the creator of classic games for for Midway for many years. And so we put out stuff. I came in in the middle of all that. I, and we ended up playing stuff on PlayStation, Genesis, Super Nintendo, every platform that could have classic games. We started doing that for Midway and Williams. Well, obviously mobile phones started to become a thing, you know, really taken off in the late nineties and early two thousands. And then when they got the ability to run Java code, I guess kind of moving from the Game Boy to another handheld device was, you know, a logical kind of step. And were people kind of seeing, obviously, with the low power of these systems, retro games could be a logical thing to put on there? Yeah, this was that's a great example of a perfect storm opportunity where people who had mobile phones with that capability were people who grew up with, say, like some of these classic arcade games and some of these old home console games. And so there was brand value to the names. Like if you said you're putting Joust on one of these phones at the time, 
Joust was a game that anybody who had this phone played when they were a kid, but they were so low power and there were so the the um, the the game loop itself was so short that it was the perfect mobile opportunity because arcade games are meant to be played for just a few minutes, and so these would be perfect for mobile. People would just be sitting in line playing Joust or whatever, like Donkey Kong, those kind of games, and it was kind of like a a golden age of re- bringing back arcade style games uh, to a device that was conducive to it. And so we, we ended up getting a lot of work for that. It was, and that was not just like midway. We ended up doing stuff for Konami, for Capcom, everybody who, once we started showing that we could do these kind of collections and, and recreate these games and emulation for phones, suddenly we were getting calls nonstop about, Hey, we've got a whole catalog of stuff. Can you do that with ours? Well, it was also kind of like a resurgence for pixel artists, uh, guys that would make kind of little tunes, mods and stuff like that. They actually got a whole industry to kind of go into. Yeah, if you look at the aesthetic of a lot of those older games, these phones had similar resolutions. So suddenly, I remember like a good friend of mine who was a really good pixel artist who worked on a lot of games. Um, he, he felt like he was semi-retired because he hadn't made the 3D transition. But then mobile hits, and suddenly like all those old skills, all that pixel pushing... Uh, came back and it was in demand and so he got a ton of work during that time and it, it also enabled him to kind of grow into uh, more modern tools and everything as well so I think it gave a lot of people opportunity when they thought that uh, there was like a, a genre and a style disappearing. Well now you're doing um, ports of Atari games as well I mean I can't remember actually who owned the Atari copyrights by that stage it went through so many different companies but I mean what was kind of the process of getting those and um, did they have much kind of say over the game design? So that's probably Hasbro when we first started working with them uh, with the Atari licenses, maybe. Because Atari had split. There was the Williams and Midway owned Atari games, which was all like later arcade games from like the late 80s through 90s and such. And then there was the Atari home stuff and early arcade games that went to Hasbro. So Centipede and all that. And that was a lot of work to understand who, like you, you hit the nail on the head, who knew who had these rights. We would we'd look at all these games that we thought would be really good to bring back and we would spend months trying to find out who actually owned the rights and the publishing rights. And in many cases, people thought they owned the rights, but then they didn't. And so we had to work through all those legalities. But while we were doing that, more often than not, a lot of these companies were still operating and, and pretty good standing business-wise that they would be uh, more likely to at some point say, you know what, what you guys are trying to do, this is great. And rather than us licensing it to you, how about we just work together and we'll invest in it with you. And so we suddenly turned into kind of a business that would get paid to produce these things and still get a royalty and a, a share of revenue, but also were kind of key to helping them understand which IP and which games they owned were still of value. So we would do things like, you know, do a new centipede uh, or re-release centipede. And they realized centipede sold really well. So like we should do a new centipede. And so they would make like a 3d centipede. And often we were so busy working on the classics that we would have to turn down the remakes or the extensions of some of these games um, and then only later would we be like, okay, we should probably make a more vertical business where we bring these games back, prove that they're very successful, but then also make new versions and sequels and that sort of thing. So that's kind of where we are uh, today, but it was a long process to, to get there because the success and, and the, the business just putting the older games out was was like just gangbusters. Well, Clack seems to be one that you're really famous for and that uh, <laughs> a lot of people mention. Uh, why do you think okay. this title stands out so well? It was funny because we had done so much for Midway that they essentially would ask us what games we should do. And we started to get a little cocky about it because we're like, uh, Chris Charla, who had moved over from NextGen to also work with us over at uh, Digital Clips, 
he and I were big fans of Clax, but it didn't seem like anybody else in the office really was, but we really liked it. And so when Midway said like, whatever games you guys want to do, go ahead. So we, we were kind of like, well, let's do that one because we really like it. And I, I loved it on the Lynx. It was one of my favorite games on the Lynx and I love the arcade game. Um, so uh, again, it was one of those things where because it wasn't a big seller, they they couldn't invest too much. So we basically, it was just Chris Charla, myself and a couple artists would do that game over, I think it was between six to eight weeks. Um, and we had come off of a long stream, like a long line of Game Boy games. So our muscles were ready. We're ready to hit this, hit the ground running. So we just crunched day one to the release. And uh, for, for being like a six to eight week production, we probably put more in that game than any other game after. And I don't know how that worked. I remember Chris Char and I would sometimes just because, you know, we're living in apartments or wherever with our wives or whatever. And we would sometimes just go to a public library and work on the game. And we'd just have laptops and just sit there and work and work and work until they kicked us out. And then we'd go to like a, a, a restaurant or a late night um, cafe or whatever and just work on the games long, or work on the game over and over and over. And we had so many problems um, in the development where we would run into logic issues and all this stuff. And so it was just a miracle it all came together. But not only did it come together, we put in so many mini games. And one of the interesting ones that everybody always calls out, of course, is the uh, the wedding proposal. Because at the time, I was living with my girlfriend. We moved out to California together. It's it had been it was basically about that time in a relationship where you're like, okay, we probably should make you know move this to to something a little more serious. And uh, but I had been working so much. I'm like, well, I'm I don't know when I'm going to be able to like sort all this stuff out. So I'll just put it into this game and I'll surprise her with it at some point and that'd be really cool and i put it in and then i moved right on to the next game which i don't even remember what it was and i forgot about it <laughs> like i forgot wow. to put that in there <laughs> no, it was just bad because like i was just so busy and then like it was four years later i got a call from chris bianek from tips and tricks magazine where they they would call regularly and be like hey is there any cool codes you have whatever and i would just give them to other team members stuff like that but then he called him he's like hey we found a couple cool codes and clacks uh, is there anything else in there? And I was like, oh, wait, wait, that's right. I, I put a proposal in there. <laughs> so I told him the thing. I'm like, I don't know. How should I do this? And he's like, well, I can, we can put it in the magazine, but not say what it is. Uh, if that would help. And then he's like, we could follow it up with the, the magazine after. So I'm like, yeah, let's do that. So, so had you actually that. proposed in person by that point then? No. So <laughs> it became a, a, a secret code in tips and tricks magazine. <laughs> and, uh, so basically what I did is I, I laid out the magazine to that page um, and left the house because I didn't want it because I knew what would happen. If I left it out, she'd be like, what's this about? And can you put the code in for me? I'd be like, no, you got to do it. So I just went driving around in my car until you know she, she saw it, she did it, and then she gave me a call and then the rest, she said yes. So it was all good. Uh-huh. And it was four <laughs> years later. It was. And that I had to explain that a little bit, which was hard to do. Um, <laughs> but it all worked out. Oh, what a romantic. I think it's the most romantic story we've ever had on this podcast, I think. <laughs> well, were there any other like Easter eggs that you've put into your games that kind of stand out? I was just, I had this revelation just the other day. And I think, I don't think there's a single game I've worked on. You know, the number used at the top of the show is kind of an old number because we just did a, I just did a re, like, reinvestigation of all the games I worked on. I've had my hand in at least, I think, just over 300 games now. And so I'm, I was looking at that and I'm helping put this together. And I'm, I'm like, I think almost every single one of these where I've had a significant, like if I'm engineering or designing or doing whatever, um, I think I have have at least one Easter egg 
and I have no idea like what they are or how to activate them because I never really wrote them down. I would just put them in. Uh, but I think almost every game I've worked on, of the 300, at least probably half of that has some form of Easter egg in there. There's stuff I would put in like entirely other games. Like Clax, if I go back to there, we had so many different games we had hidden into that. Um, we had like, um, in fact, the UK version of the game has the Atari Adventure game hidden in it uh, oh, wow. at the time because they got the rights to do that. And so I just recreated it and put it in there while we we're waiting for lot check of the US version before we started working on the UK version. And so we put that in. And then games like, I think, uh, NFL Blitz, you could like play football on the moon. You could do all that kind of stuff. Tarzan had some crazy, weird things in there where you can change gravity and do all kinds of stuff. I was a huge fan, obviously, of like NFL Blitz and Midway games where they had all those secret codes. So I, I just started doing more and more of that. And obviously, Adventure being the Easter egg of all Easter eggs early on. And that was another game that like I think influenced me uh, as I started putting these games together. Oh, as you mentioned, you worked on 300 titles there. There, there must have been some really fun ones that you worked on. Uh, which ones were the best experience? Disney's, believe it or not, like, you know, licensed games get a bad rap, but Disney's Tarzan was super fun to work on uh, because it was kind of like everything I loved about the process of making games. Like we had really cool, we had a really technically cool animation system. I was a big fan of games like Aladdin on Genesis. So we, we got uh, Disney animators to provide pencil test animation for all our characters. And so I was able to do the same process that was on Aladdin, which I always fantasized about doing. So that was super cool. It was Game Boy, which I love because Game Boy feels like those old systems. I love Z80. I love Z80 and 6502 programming. And so working on that game was just a dream. You're, I'm talking to Disney people. I'm working with Activision, with really great friends over at Activision. And then the team we had was incredible. So that one has a very special place in my heart. That was my first million seller title. Um, so that was also one of those things where it's like, I, I remember going to a store and, um, seeing, a, a, a kid ask his mom if he can get Tarzan for Game Boy and a friend I was with was like, Hey, that's cool because this guy made it. And that was like my first autograph <laughs> having to <laughs> nice. do I think So that one, that one's super fun. Uh, but ultimately I think looking back, the one that really has a, a place in my heart is a game that's more recent. It's a game called IDARB, hashtag I-D-A-R-D, A-R-B, uh, which is an acronym for It Draws a Red Box. And that one is super cool uh, because I'd never anticipated making it. It was just something I tweeted out where I drew a red box in the middle of the computer screen. And I asked Twitter, like, what should I do with this box? What should I make it do? And one of the first people to respond was Tim Schafer from Double Fine who said like it should it should have like a you know i think he said something like it should have some sort of like personal issues and it's got to work through them and talk to other people and something like okay that's cool and then because he responded hundreds and hundreds of other people started responding to these crazy ideas and i thought it would be a super fun thing where i try to implement everybody's ideas wherever i could and then do like a conference talk about how uh design by committee is terrible and here's why but the weirdest thing happened is the game actually started to get really good and all these ideas coalesced into something that was just super fun. And uh, by the time that thing came out, it it launched a great success. And we had, I remember our first day, we had 16 years worth of multiplayer play on it in a single day. It was just nuts. Yeah, I was going to say the multiplayer was absolutely mad. And it was on the Xbox, wasn't it? It launched on Xbox One through the ID at Xbox program. It was something, again, it was like a game in my mind was kind of a throwaway game. So we weren't ready for it to actually succeed. So we, we didn't have like a follow-up plan. We we're already working on other projects by the time it started to have its own success. 
And so we look back at that as like a really good example of how we have to be prepared because even the smallest thing we work on could end up being something big. And we were already committed to contracts and doing other stuff. And it just kind of ruined the whole momentum of its success. Well, we were talking before we started recording, Mike, about, you know, kind of a mutual appreciation for failed systems. <laughs> and uh, the one that I collect from in the Atari Jaguar, I know you worked on um, one of the most infamous unreleased games on there that was at uh, Bomberman Legends. What was the story behind that? And you discovered the source code, didn't you, as well? What, what kind of happened there? Oh, yeah. So if we go back in the Wayback Machine to around 93, 94, when Jaguar was still kind of uh, a, a market entity that was doing decent, um, my friends and I, we got together and we kind of pulled our credit cards together and said, Look, let's form a development company. We called it Genetic Fantasia for some reason. And um, we went out to our first consumer electronics show as a company, uh, which was in Vegas. And our whole our whole goal was to just secure development equipment on whatever we can get, whatever we can get, basically, because we had no experience really other than like our stuff we sell at local computer stores or whatever. So if we can just get something, we'll start making product for it and games and have fun with it. And so um, we talked to everybody. I remember we met Trip Hawkins, who shoved us off onto other people, and we just kept getting passed around. And then finally, we went to Atari, and I, I remember seeing Jeff Minter. And I was a huge fan of Jeff Minter's uh, being a Commodore 64 guy. And so I just started to fanboy with Jeff a little bit. And um, and he was showing me the virtual light machine that he had just worked on. And I already knew Tempest 2000 was great and all this stuff. And I was just like, look, we're trying to like figure out how to get a you know development system. And I would love to do stuff on Jaguar, but we don't even know who to talk to or if anybody's going to take us seriously. And so he walked us over to the guy that would, would handle all that stuff. It was Bill Raybach. And uh, he, he was awesome because Jeff's just like, I don't know these guys. They might be terrible, but uh, they want to develop games on, on the Jaguar. <laughs> and uh, they seem nice enough. And then he just like, let us go. It was like, all right. And so uh, we had a conversation with him. We met like the the tech head there. Uh, they told us about like all the equipment, what it costs, everything like that. And we explained some of the ideas we had, which were these really bad game ideas. Actually, I'm surprised they even entertained us. Um, so we went home and then a week later we got paperwork we used our crazy credit cards that we could max out and got all the dev equipment we needed. And we just started making stuff. And we would have regular check-ins with Atari. And they would ask us what we're thinking about. What, when do we think we can have something done? When can they look at stuff? And while we're doing all this stuff, we're huge fans of Super Bomberman on the Super Nintendo. All Bomberman games, but Super Bomberman 2 in particular was like the thing at the time. We're really into it. And uh, so we're sitting there going like, okay, we can make our own games but nobody's going to care about those. Uh, but we love Bomberman. If we're going to work on something, let's do something we really love. Why don't we try to figure out if we can do an official Bomberman game for Atari? Um, but having talked to Atari a little bit and talked to them about some other things, like what they did with Tempest and all stuff, I realized like maybe going to them first to try to get Bomberman on there would be kind of tough because they seem really busy. Maybe we should just try to get Bomberman ourselves and then take it to Atari. So with that in mind, I just remember early internet days trying to find Hudson Soft's phone number in Japan and finally found it. I just cold called them uh, during their business hours. Actually, I forgot what it was here. And uh, I remember just being, I, I didn't even think at the time because I was just like really dumb. I am like, Oh, they, they answered in Japanese and I didn't speak Japanese. And I'm sitting there trying to communicate with somebody who picked up the phone about wanting to talk to somebody about licensing. And so it was like really bad. And I kept getting passed around to people within Hudson stuff. They didn't hang up on me. They kept passing around. And finally somebody who could speak English answered the phone and it was actually a guy, I think it was an American named Bill Rich that was working in Japan at Hudson Soft. And I just remember him like saying, wait, wait, who are you? Like, 
what are you calling about? And I'm like, oh, and so I'm trying to play like I'm some sort of big wig at like our company. Like we're looking to license Bomberman. want to bring it to the Atari Jaguar. We have a you know relationship with Atari and all this stuff. And so he was just listening to all this stuff. And he's just like, well, you know, if, if Atari's interested, I can make the introductions here. And all stuff. I'm like, okay, that's great. So I hung up with him called Atari and I'm like, Hey, we got a call from Hudson soft asking about like, how, what do they have to do to bring Bomberman to Atari? Uh, but like, is Atari interested in funding something like that? And I'm like, I'd love to get you guys together. So I basically danced around trying to make each one think the other wanted to be in business together and finally got it to the point where I could be on the phone with both of them. And uh, they didn't figure out that I was just orchestrating everything and they ended up doing a deal. And so at that point we just started making Bomberman and we, we were introduced to the Bomberman committee is what we always called it. I don't know if that was their official name, but there was a series of people at Hudson soft who oversaw everything from licensing to whatever Bomberman. And so we built a design document, sent it over there. And um, we had, I remember we had some of these features where like, we want people to be able to control the distribution of power-ups in a level, like have a lot of customization uh, because we were also big GoldenEye fans. So imagine like a GoldenEye multiplayer mode with Bomberman where you can customize everything so we put everything in the kitchen sink in there we called it bomberman legends sent over and to our surprise hudson soft was really positive about it and they gave us some notes they give us feedback on how if you push diagonal how the logic works as a as a character navigates moving diagonally and how they go around corners and all stuff there was like really robust notes uh from them so we just started implementing that stuff and we got the game to a like the the battle mode state we didn't really get the single player um very far but we got the multiplayer uh, up and playable with with the all the power-ups and everything like that. And that was the thing that was most exciting, I think, to Atari and everybody was like, oh, they can sell multi-taps with this and we can have players, uh, five players or more. And we're investigating how many more we could put in. We had five to start. Um, so that was all going well. And then that's when Atari's financial troubles hit. And um, here I am, I'm Cloud9. I'm like, we're working on our favorite game. We got all stuff going on. And Atari was just like, hey guys, just to give you a heads up that uh, money's not really good right now. So this licensing deal is probably going to go away. Like, Maybe you can switch it and change it out. And it's not Bomberman, but it's something that plays like Bomberman. And for me, being so young in the industry, that was like, I, I was like, I can't do that. I'm like, I can't betray Bomberman or Hudson Soft. Like, we can't move with this. And we tried. We tried to come up with something else. I'm like, it can't. Like, we'll get sued and all stuff. And I, I wasn't even worried about that. I just wanted to make Bomberman so badly. So we're trying to figure that out. And then it was just a few weeks after that call where they're like, hey, look, it looks like Atari's not going to be around much longer anyway. Uh, the Jaguar is going to, we're not going to support it anymore and all stuff. And so that was, that was devastating because again, we're like a group of six college age kids just out of college, really, who uh, were maxing out credit cards that we barely were able to get. And so how we're going to make our money back, like that was awful. So we didn't, we ended up just figuring out how to pay all that off. And uh, we all went our own separate ways. And that was kind of the end of Bomberman. In fact, I didn't even, I didn't even think at the time really to keep the source or where it was. I wasn't even in the mood to think about any of it. Uh, but it was just years ago, my brother, when he was going through his stuff, when he was getting ready to, to make a move and he went through a box and he found a CD that said Bomberman on it. And so he checked it out. And sure enough, luckily, we had source code on that CD. And uh, he's since been able to get that all copied, backed up. And he's been poking around with a, a friend of his to uh, resuscitate it and kind of finish cleaning up some of the bugs. And hopefully, hopefully sometime soon we can we can put it out there so people can see what it is and how well, that actually. was going to be my next question because i know everyone on like atari age has been desperate to play that game since you found I the know. source code it, we have so i i've been trying what we've been doing is trying to get it up and running. we have it in an emulator we're trying to get it up and running on the hardware um there's some weirdness going on there like it ran great on the development environment but it's not running really well as a rom so we're sorting through that we actually have somebody who's really 
good at that in the in the homebrew scene and so they're taking a look at that and hopefully if that all gets like to the first state of it like kind of working we'll get that out there oh that's excellent well let us know when you do and i just say you're really into game preservation as well and you've found a few prototypes and stuff so how important are these games and the history of gaming and how have you managed to track down and discover some of these (laughs) you know a lot of it has to do with moving to the bay area where a lot of game development in the early days was done and also uh i think the kind of like public reputation i have for being somebody that's looking for this sort of stuff has kind of led people to myself and to the video game history foundation that frank cefaldi runs i'm on the board for that as well and um i think what happens is there's a lot of people who have just stuff laying around that had been in the game industry it's just in bins and garages and they don't want to get rid of it they know it needs to be preserved but they didn't know who who to go to for that and as we've become more and more public about it uh we've been seeing more and more of this stuff just surface um but also yeah it's like being in the in the right place at the right time but also being in the game industry i'm in touch with a lot of people who've been in the industry for 30 plus years and it's inevitably the question i always go to is like well do you still have any of the old stuff you worked on do you have anything that hasn't been released that you've been just hoping that you can preserve or, you know, that sort of thing. And so it's, it's been very fruitful actually. And uh, there's days when I'm like, I go through stuff that people have given me and I didn't realize what they had given me. And I'll find like weird builds of games that nobody knew existed or in stuff or, and that sort of thing. So I basically try my best to go through all that stuff, give it to the video game history foundation, who then in turn finds the right organization to, um, give those materials to and it's just it's become almost like a full-time job <laughs> even though it's on the side but it's amazing what you can find in people's lofts but also what you can find in the desert as well <laughs> and you were involved in a atari game over did you think this kind of crazy tale would be so popular i always thought it was an urban legend i didn't believe it was true before i saw that you know that was so we were talking about like next gen and always looking towards the future one of the articles i had written for next gen was about the buried Atari games. And uh, I had started to do essentially like an investigative report on that for next gen. And I hit a few dead ends. Like one, one thing uh, I did find out though, based off of the people we had met over at Atari, like Jim Hellerman and and those guys uh, was that we kind of knew the location. We knew it was in Alamogordo. We knew that it was like, it was buried and there was cement over it. Um, One thing we did also find out that wasn't covered in the documentary but even back at next gen was that there were two sites where things were buried. There's one in California and one in New Mexico. Um, the one in California was right near Atari and it's uh, like, no one really talks about that one. And also there was a, um, a, like a lot of the warehouses for Atari. And to this day, you can go to these warehouses that are no longer Atari, of course. And if you look down in the cement there, if you walk through there are warehouses that have a lot of traction, uh, like the, you can, you can't slide on their floors. It was just mainly for like kind of the work they would do. If you look down at that cement and you see what it is, it's really a whole bunch of just crushed circuit boards. And what they had done is they steamrolled over a bunch of Atari games and systems and created grit that they poured into the cement for some of these warehouses. So all this stuff I was kind of learning back at NextGen and um, uh, through like a mutual friend, basically, a friend of mine, Gary Witta, who you guys probably know, who writer and game PC Gamer magazine and several other magazines. Um, he's a friend I knew by when I was working at NextGen he was contacted about Atari game over and asked to talk on it. And he was, he just kind of brought up like, Hey, you should probably talk to Mike Micah. He he's put some time into this. And uh, so I got a call from Zach Penn, who was the screenwriter and kind of the host of the documentary. And we had several lengthy conversations that turned into, Hey, you should really be in this. 
And do you mind if we come on out and talk to you more about it and film at your house? And I'm like, sure, let's do it. And um, at the same time, another friend of mine who uh, who's the author of uh, Ready Player One, um, he was also being asked to be, be in it as well. So we started conspiring on like, okay, well, let's go to New Mexico together and let's go have some fun. And let's just like, let's dig this stuff up. So we ended up all coming together for this documentary. We had a good time. We had no idea that anybody even be remotely interested in it until um, the day that we're doing the major filming when we're doing the dig. And we had put the message out that we're going to be digging for these Atari games, give kind of an idea of it in hopes that we would get a few people to show up. So it looked like it was just not us sitting around a tractor uh, digging out a hole. And uh, that morning while we we're waiting, getting things re- set up, it was just like, it was amazing to see as there's this weird storm. It was like something out of like Lawrence of Arabia or the beginning of like close encounters, of the third kind, the sandstorms going on. And then you start seeing people coming to the location. It was a line of people, not like dozens or whatever. It ends up being hundreds of people like coming to see this. It's like, why, why are they coming out in a sandstorm to watch us dig up games? But they're, they're coming out. And a lot of these people were kids at the time in Alamogordo who went to the dump and stole games from the dump when they heard that Atari buried stuff. And that's why they cemented over it. So there's this guy that was in this powder blue tracksuit who was like probably in his sixties, maybe, maybe yeah, late sixties. And he had this tracksuit on and he was wearing basically this like gold chain at the end of it. He had a circuit board, which was like the first game he pulled out of <laughs> the dump. <laughs> and he was like, tell us this story. And it was like, it was amazing. Cause he's like, we were poor. I never, we never had anything like this. It was all too expensive. But then, when we heard about this stuff, like my friends and I snuck in and we got Atari systems and all these Atari games. And that was, that was their way to like get a game system. And it was like, it was a huge moment in his life. So he came out to be part of this. And then there were people who like were bitten by scorpions trying to get this stuff. And <laughs> they were showing up. And a lot of them are like now in government positions in Alamogordo and stuff. So it was just this weird kind of like, I don't know, like the, this ecosystem of people who were all connected through the burial of these Atari games. And it was just amazing to have like Howard Scott Warshaw who made the game children who snuck in to, to get the games who didn't have video games in their life. And uh, people who are now running the city who were part of this whole thing all in one spot. And it was, it was really, it was really kind of, kind of nuts. And I think that's what made it something more than just we're digging up some games in the desert. I think one of my favorite moments that we've ever done on this podcast is when we had Howard on and he was talking about the moment when obviously he's kind of beaten up after the whole, you know, E.T. being responsible for the video games crash thing. And then he said that when the games were dug up, he realized that this thing he made all those years ago was finally giving people joy. Admittedly, not in the way that he thought it would, but it it did eventually. Yeah, it was a very emotional moment, really. I remember I was like, it was weird because we were all kind of choked up for him, I think, because he was, it, it all like, 30 years of this plus like more than 30 years of this, all that weight suddenly being shed as he's watching how happy everybody is there. And all the stories people are talking about uh, like stories about the game. And like, it was just a celebration rather than kind of like, you know, proof of a burial. And uh, I, I, that was, that was just awesome. It's kind of like vindication of him, you know, kind of uh, uh, really people was. having the passion of the game when before, you know, he got blamed for the whole destruction of the industry. Really? Yeah. And he's one of those guys who like, you would never know it was affecting him because he's so positive. And I remember like you'd go to 3DO when he and Todd Fry were working together over there and they were like in cubicles next to each other and they would have E.T. and Pac-Man Atari up on their thing. And they'd be like, we're the two guys that destroyed the game industry. They joke about it and do all this kind of stuff. Um, But it really did affect these guys. And obviously it should. And I think uh, that was on one hand, a bit of closure, but also, uh, 
it, it was kind of like uh, it was like what you were saying. It's it more of a celebration and, and realization that it wasn't as bad as he thought it was because he was just hearing the negative. There was so much more positive that came out of it. Well, is it true that you, I mean, talking about your collection, you've got a basement filled with some of the rarest sealed games of all time. I've read that rumor online. <laughs> yeah, it is like a bunker. I'm here right now. And uh, yeah, it's it's got all kinds of crazy stuff. I've got like uh, sealed old games for every kind of system you can imagine, but also a whole bunch of like floppy disks and backups of things. Like I've got the source code to SimCity for the Commodore 64 and one bin. I've got like just crazy stuff around here that basically would come from like meeting people like i was saying before and then one day they would just show up like a, a truck and be like here take all this stuff like i just gotta hand it off to somebody else it's not my problem anymore <laughs> and so it's a lot of unprocessed stuff too that it has to like make its way to museums and that sort of thing well i think i'd seal myself in there i think <laughs> <laughs> well if there's an earthquake while we're recording i probably will be sealed in here. <laughs> well have you kind of got your kids involved because uh famously i remember you uh fixed donkey kong for your daughter Can you tell us a bit more about this <laughs> that was uh you ironically i've been making games for decades and the thing that i get most known for or re- remembered for is the uh donkey kong hack or a lot of people call me donkey kong dad and that came from Basically, when my daughter, she was about three years old, and I introduced her to Donkey Kong, and she actually got pretty good at it. It was the arcade version of Donkey Kong, and she would sit there and play it, and she would get through the levels, and it was just kind of remarkable. Uh, so I was like, great, let's move you up to the Mario games, because if you like this, you like the Mario games. So we started playing Super Mario Brothers. She really liked Super Mario Brothers too, because you could play as uh, the princess. Uh, um, is, is it Toadstool? I forget which princess version it was in there, but uh, you could play as the princess, and she could like, kind of glide and all stuff. And then we played Super Mario Brothers 3 and stuff. And eventually she just wanted to play Donkey Kong again. So we went back to Donkey Kong, but she just kept asking me, can I play as the girl? And I'm like, oh, yeah, not on this one. Sorry. Like this one, you can't, you can only play as Mario. And then afterwards, like just a little bit that night, I started thinking like, if there's ever anybody who can solve this problem, it's like my whole career has been this. (laughs) Like I'm supposed to be doing this. I hack ROMs. I emulate things and do whatever. So I'm like, I got to figure this out. So basically I reached out to a friend of mine at the office and asked him what kind of tools I could use if there was anything out there. And uh, so the night after, which was like a Friday night, um, I just started hacking away at it and I was posting my progress on Facebook and a friend of mine, Adam Boys, uh, uh, who was for a while over at Sony and now over at Iron Galaxy, he was like, Hey, do you mind if I start posting this other places? Cause it's really cool. I'm like, yeah, go ahead. And um, so the next day uh, I had done, I posted up the the ROM hack, put a video up and everything like that. And the next day I went on to this like charity event for my son's school. And my wife's like, you know, turn off your phone. We don't want any interruptions. You always just look at it when you're here. I'm like, oh, all right, all right. Yeah, but at one point I'm like, well, what if the babysitter like needs something? Or so I checked my phone. I had so many messages. All these people are like, and one of them that kind of stood out was a friend of mine saying like, your story's blowing up. And I'm like, oh no. Like I've, I've been in this long enough to be like, what did I say? on what podcast that's got me in trouble now <laughs> like that I expose like a new console that I do something. And so I gave him a call and he's like, no, it's your donkey Kong story. I'm like, what? And so between like that Friday and by Monday morning, like I was being invited to like talk shows and stuff like that. it was really nuts, but it was all my daughter's fault. Like she, she wanted this thing and she was, she rightly wanted it. And it was like right at the right moment because um, while I was doing this, I was just thinking it was just fun to do. But there was a lot of stuff and debate going on around um, tropes in video games. And one of those tropes being the damsel in distress trope and what that means and how negative it is. And so there's a lot of debate going on about that. And there's a lot of like online trolling and hate going around. So this got kind of involved in a bit of that. So that was the first time I put that YouTube video up. It was the first time I saw like 
hate messages and death threats and all stuff where I'm like, wait, this is just a, this is just a hack oh, of Donkey Jesus. Kong. Why are these people <laughs> so upset? And so um, luckily, like, because other people have been through this, uh, they knew how to like get that sorted out with YouTube and do all this sort of stuff. So it all started going there, but it was like, I was learning through this whole process, but ultimately at the end of the day, it was amazing because like my daughter had done something really beautiful and that she wanted to be represented in a game at this time when people were questioning representation in games. And so I, I think one of the coolest things about it was there was some, um, there was a, a women in gaming event that the, the last day they ended by putting the lights down and just projecting the footage of the game being played. I'm like, that is amazing because like, if this is the direction my daughter's going in and this is like, this is something that affects people, I want to do more of that because representation in games is way more meaningful than just the story of a game or anything else. It's about getting people to like really enjoy themselves and get lost in the fantasy of these things. And like, we're doing it wrong if we can't, like if, if this kind of impact, this makes this kind of impact, that means we're just doing it wrong. Is she still playing it? She does. Yeah. She's actually more proud of it. Like, I think. I did that thing. She played it for a little while and then she just jumped onto Frogger. It was like, okay, that's that. And like, do I have to like make the, the purple frog now something playable? But um, she ultimately now she's a little bit older. She looks back on all that stuff. And she's really, I think she's really proud of having that thought and doing that, that she now has gone back to play. And I've been given really cool gifts from people like uh, uh, this guy, Neil Henry made this amazing Pauline edition Donkey Kong and the, the Coleco old school Coleco handheld uh, toy kind of thing. And it plays the Pauline version of Donkey Kong in that. Like all these cool things that she now has that she gets to play and feel like she was a part of. Well, once you kind of go Frogger, you can't go back. It's <laughs> <Yeah>. really addictive. <laughs> we got to face that music, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, Mike, it's amazing that, you know, you've still got this amazing passion for video games and it's been so incredible getting these stories. I mean, what, what are you working on at the moment then? What's coming up? Well, we just had uh, a couple things that came out just recently. So the the new Medieval for PlayStation was uh, the game we worked on. We rebuilt Medieval from the ground up in Unreal, put it out there, and it's doing great on PlayStation 4. We just launched the Samurai Showdown Collection, which is the effort of uh, our friends over at SNK, ourselves, and, and our good friends at the Big Game History Foundation, as well as Brandon Sheffield, who over at Necrosoft. We just came together as huge Samurai Showdown fans and created the ultimate collection of Samurai Showdown games, which includes... Red 5 Perfect, or Perfect, uh, as they call it, or whatever the final name is. And uh, that was a game that none of us knew existed. It was a Finnish Samurai Showdown game that didn't make it to market, and it was a version of Samurai Showdown 5. Um, so that's included in there. So that's that's just out. Um, and then we're, we're working hard on several uh, projects right now, one being a next-gen title uh, with about four or five other uh, digital clips classic style treatments but what we're doing in these things now is we're focusing more and more on the criterion treatment of these titles so we're doing a lot more uh documentary footage and um also doing a lot more interactive documentary work on these things so that we can give context to people so that when we talk about these older games it's not just here's this older game and play it it's here's here's the role this game played in the evolution of video games here's the importance of the title and here's all these people talking about why you should pay attention to this and how it should be played so that you understand and appreciate it more and so we're doing a lot more of that work, which is really exciting. Fantastic. And obviously, people can keep up to date at digitaleclipse.com. I'll put a link to that in our show notes as well. Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I'm excited to be on this finally. Thank you so much for inviting me. Mm-hmm.